Albert Black was born in Belfast in 1935, the son of a labouring family. The mother worked, probably worked um, in, in a mill. I believe she worked, possibly worked in Jenny Mount Linen Mill in Belfast. Uh, his father had been a labourer. And Albert, who came to be known as Paddy, emigrated to New Zealand as what, uh, on the Captain Cook uh, in 1953, an 18-year-old looking for a life in which he had better, better opportunities. We called them 10 bob poms in those days. Uh, sorry, 10 quid poms. My father was a 10 bob pom in the 1920s. So he was, he was 10 quid pom. There were a lot of people who actually knew um, uh, Albert, or Paddy as he quickly came to be known on board the ship. And after he came to New Zealand, he was more often called Paddy than he was Albert. So I tend to drift between the two when I'm talking about him because it was the formal side of, and distressing side of his life when he was Albert. But Albert arrived in New Zealand in 1953. He had to stay for two years, as people who had been assistant immigrants did. Uh, he went to work for the Post and Telegraph uh, in Nainai for near, uh, the first 18 months or so, and he was accompanied by a friend called Peter Simpson, who was on board the ship too. Um, so they, they boarded together um, with a family. There was a, a mother who at the end of the war had um, become alone and had some children. And from all the accounts that I've heard, and I know... Uh, of someone who actually lived in that household. He was a gentle, caring kind of kid, um, full of beans, sang a lot, um, waltzed with one of the little girls with her on his feet one one Christmas to the, um, and and was he had kept kept a pet hedgehog and he cried when it died. So you know, not a bad kind of a kid. Just a kid, a teenager. He went to Auckland. He became a little unhappy. It would appear that he probably became homesick and he decided to go to Auckland. And he went to Auckland and in the first week that he was there, he was met somebody, a woman who had an empty boarding house that he wa she wanted somebody to look after. So... This boarding house he took over and all these empty rooms. He wasn't supposed to do, um, he wasn't supposed to have anybody to stay. It was just supposed to be him. Well, you know, young people don't always stick to the rules. He very quickly became friendly with a group of people at a, at a restaurant in uh, Queen Street in Auckland called Ye Old Barn Cafe, which was a hangout for bodgies and widgies and teddy boys. And there he was to meet Alec Jacques. Alec Jacques has, was a child migrant, not like, not an, uh, not an immigrant, but a child migrant. Um, so we had a rather sorrowful history, I think, of, you know, if you look back to Britain and the way that they shipped orphans off around the Commonwealth, we had a pretty sad history there of, 
um, I've sent kids, I've receiving kids from Britain who were from orphanages, and a lot of them ended up on farms um, and um, didn't get much education, and a lot of them were quite bitter people. Uh, so was Alan Shark. He did his compulsory military training, and it was, um, and at some point he adopted the name of Johnny McBride. Johnny McBride was the central character in a Mickey Spillane novel called The Long Wait. I don't know whether any of you remember Mickey Spillane and I, the jury, but those were the bad books that we teenagers didn't get to read. I have to say that I was lent one under cover of my English textbook when I was 15, 14, I think. They were not, they were quite unavailable, one thought. But anyway, Ellen became Johnny McBride and he went to Auckland. He, he took on this identity. That's how he introduced himself. Nobody would know until his death that he wasn't Johnny McBride. And Johnny McBride was a very violent character. And so too did Alan Jacques become. So those are the two main characters in this story. And it would be that Paddy, Albert, Paddy would um, get into a fight with, with, this, with Johnny McBride, who he had allowed to come and stay in this boarding house so things went wrong, went downhill very quickly. There was a party at the boarding house that was to have celebrated Paddy's 20th birthday. Uh, Johnny McBride beat him up very badly. And the next day, and he said he called him a yellow Irish bastard and said that the next day he would finish him off. And it was at the old barn cafe the next day that Paddy went armed with a knife, as all the young people there were, um, and struck one blow when Johnny told him that he was going to um, he was going to finish him, do for him, and unfortunately he died from that wound, and so. In December, five months later, he was hanged, the second to last person to be hanged in New Zealand. It was the graphic description of his hanging that appeared in a newspaper that was to influence many people who thought that the death penalty was a good idea um, to start petitioning for some sort of a change. And I will come to the political ramifications of that in a moment. But... His place in our history is that, the, that it was his death that was one of the influences that led to the abolition of capital punishment in this country. So these two young men, with their sad fight, did somehow create something that, has ch that changed something, and for that reason I was interested. Um, I was interested for a lot of reasons, and people say, why would you think about, um, about writing about something like this? Well, it was my era. I was, um, uh, that's me, the month that 
um, that Paddy was hanged. I was a 15-year-old. I was a teenager in the same time that Paddy was, was a teenager. So the era belonged to me. I'd also had in the back of my mind for a long time a theme that had been running around about young men. And I like young men. I mean, I have a lot of them in my family. They're all good young guys. They've all turned out pretty damn well. And I'm pleased about that. But there's always that dangerous path that young people walk. And that's that became to me one of those things that I looked at in the newspapers and think, thought, there, there's a good young man who's made a terrible mistake. This one terrible mistake that can change so many lives. And I'd never really thought about how I could write about it, but I picked up a newspaper clipping and it had, and it had somebody recreating this incident, you know, so many X number of years after this had happened. And I thought to myself, yeah, actually, this is what this looks to me like the story of a young man who's made one terrible mistake. And I, somebody, and Redma Yiska, who's a friend of mine, a, a journalist and a writer, actually had some of the transcripts of the trial, and he offered to let me have a look at them. I don't have the complete transcripts, but what I saw was enough for me to think there's something actually wrong with this. It's not as straightforward and as simple as it, as it appears. Um, this was 1950s. When I think about the 1950s, what was it like? Well, it was, it was the Sid Holland's government. Um, it was the National Party. It was a time when um, girls like me, when we were going out anywhere, wore white gloves and white and hats. Our mothers always wore, always wore hats when they went out. Boys wore knitted pullovers and um, trousers with cuffs. And, um, and it was New Zealand, after the war, still recovering from what the war was like. Um, there'd been new freedoms in, in New Zealand. There'd been Americans. There'd been changes in attitudes. But when the war was over, essentially... Um, there was a desire to return to the good old days and the status quo, really. Um, a little bit like, I think, the people who, in Britain who are voting for Brexit would be my, <laughs> my view of things. But the, there had been a Labour government throughout the war, the war, and Sid Holland, the leader of the National Party, came to power in 1949 promising a number of things that would, in effect, go back to the, to the good old days, if you like, and he was going to bring back the death penalty. There'd been a particularly unpleasant murder in, in, on Mount Victoria here in Wellington, and there'd been a lot of public outrage, and certainly it was a disgusting crime, but it was enough for Sid Holland to say... If I get in, I'll bring the death penalty back. And that's immediately what he did. He was very much supported by his Attorney General, Sir John Marshall. Now, I know that a number of people here knew Sir John. I did too. 
Um, I respected him and I don't in any way wish to belittle him or his family in any way whatsoever. He was a person who I believe acted out of a genuine belief and his belief was that, was, that it was more humane to kill somebody than to send them to life send them to prison for the rest of their lives. It's a view that I happen to disagree with. Um, and the, th the thing that I have always, that always worries me about that sort of view is that um, what if you're wrong? Um, you know, when things come down to, to, to black and white, what if you're wrong about this judgment? And this is where we start to come to the crux of, of what is the problem that I have for Albert Black and his case. As events unfolded, it seemed clear, and I'll discuss some of the, some a, this, these aspects, it seemed to me that, it, that the problem was that judging that the judgment might well have gone for manslaughter, which of course doesn't carry, wouldn't have carried the death penalty. It's easy to say that I'm looking at this from a contemporary point of view. I don't want it to seem so. I'm talking about the laws of the time. And the laws of the time, the law at the time, would not have put a man to death if it had been manslaughter. I'll go over some of the, the reasons I believe that it was in, the, in a few minutes. Um, anyway, I, to just to go back for a moment, I, this was this was New Zealand. This was New Zealand trying to be um, a rural, good old days, 1950s place. So I was interested because of the newspaper account, because of the era, and because my father was an Irishman, and I I kind of felt something about this boy that perhaps I might not have otherwise. I didn't expect to write a novel, and I didn't expect to find myself pleading manslaughter and self-defence instead of murder. But when I started to read, the more I read, the more I thought, this is a novel and I want to write it. There was also, as I read the transcripts, there were things that amused me. They amused me like the girl, one of the girl witnesses who I call Rita Zilich, and I'm aware that, again, that quite a lot of the witnesses may still well be alive because I have met enough people who are alive in that time to think that's, that's possible. So I've changed their, their names, really. Um, I had to. But Rita Zilich is a 16-year-old girl who'd been at the party on the night of the fight. And she's quite a girl, is Rita. She's a, she's a modern girl. She has gone to, she's been to Ye Old Barn Cafe the, on the night of the party before the, the incident where uh, Johnny McBride dies and somebody's called out and said, hey, Rita, come to the party. And she's gone to the party and as when she's on the witness stand, the um, defence lawyer says, so your parents were quite happy about you going to this party, were they, Miss Zillich? Well, no, she says. Um, not really. I, I went home and I went to bed 
And they thought that I stayed in bed, but actually I, I, I had to be home in time to get up and go to work in the morning. So she'd popped out of the window and gone off to the party. Well, I have to say, I had done exactly the same thing when I was 16. So it, it seemed to me that I, I had quite a response, a personal response to this, um, this, some of these young people. In order to do my research, I, I talked to people who'd lived in Nainai and who Paddy had worked with. I went to Belfast um, and I had the most amazing amount of help from the Linen Hall Library and from births, deaths and marriages in, in Belfast. They were absolutely fascinated and they really wanted to help me find uh, relatives of, of Paddy's. We didn't find any. I think that somewhere in the world there may be a brother who was born 10 years after he was, but he was not living in Northern Ireland at the time. Um, so there was that, and there was the um, transcripts of, that I had that Redmer had given me, the living witnesses, and of course the Mason Garb report, which is another facet of the 1950s. The Mazengarb report um, was commissioned in response to a scandal that had arisen in the Hutt Valley at the very time that Paddy was living there with this family, although there is nothing that I have learned to say that he was implicated in these events or that they had anything to do with him leaving the Hutt Valley. But the, the scandal that had arisen was... Um, that some teenagers were supposed to be getting up to no good, like they were having sex on the banks of the Hutt River, or they were having some gropes in the back of the picture theatre at the in the hut, or they were meeting the girls were meeting boys on motorbikes at the Elbe milk bar. So this was in truth newspaper. And Sid Holland, in his virtuous mode, commissioned his friend Oswald Mazengarb to write a report which was to warn people, to say about the, what the terrible things that were going on and to warn parents to look out for their, for their, their children. And this report was sent to the letterbox of every family who was receiving the family benefit at that time. And of course it came through my parents' letterbox too, and they swiftly put it out of sight, so that I didn't ever see it at the time, but I did read it many years later. And that formed the background for a climate of moral outrage, essentially. Um, when I went to Belfast, I couldn't find his relatives. I could find the school, I could find the roads where Paddy walked, the house where he first lived as a child, the house where he left to come to New Zealand from, and, um, and, the letter, and various letters of his which had been um, sent to him from prison later on, um, coming from uh, Peter Simpson, his shipboard friend. So why then a novel and not a book of non-fiction? This is the tricky part. In the historical novels I write, I tend to look at the lives of marginalised people for whom we have the bare minimum of personal record of their dialogue, thoughts and feelings. 
Or if we do, there is the possibility of different interpretations of what we, what we have been told. One of my novels that particularly explores an alternative um, version of that which has been written is that of Jean Batten, who's, I think I've got her, that's me too, in the 50s. Gosh, how time has changed. There's Jean. Um, yep. Um, but... I think perhaps I can't, haven't got the time to digress into why the details of Jean Batten's lives are so different from the experiences portrayed by Ian Mackesy in his biography Garbo of the Skies, but I think there are many things which can be interpreted in different ways. Um, once the main informants have died, there's no going back. But we have enough, if we talk to enough people and do enough reading and research, we have enough, I think, to create an authentic voice for the, for the character, and that's what I have tried to do. I work with, I, I hesitate to put, mention myself in the same breath as Hilary Mantel, but I understand that she and I work in a, in a very, with a very similar method of reading and reading and reading as much as we can getting as many different quotes as we can of dialogue so that we can reinvent the voice, taking all the, the, the facts that we've gathered and trying to just see them through, through as characters rather than try and say this is what, is what really happened because there are just some things that we can never know. Albert's life events are true, however, on the whole. His romantic life is embellished, although we know for a fact that he had a number of girlfriends. The last of his girlfriends was actually to bear his child three months after his death, and she is one of the people to whom my book is dedicated, but in the interests of privacy, I can't actually tell you who she is. She didn't grow up with her birth mother, and her story and her desire to find out more about her birth father has been an interesting part of this journey for me. The lives of the witnesses at his trial are largely invented, again because, um, because some of those people are living and I don't want to, I don't wish to haunt old men and women with the roles they played in a 64-year-old incident. The only difference to the course of events that unfolded is that the jury is a fiction. Um, I took dramatic licence and I wanted to... Uh, I had once been, take, been on a jury which had been biased from the outset before we even saw the defendant and it had, I'd always wanted to use that in fiction and as it was, I used the jury as a, a, a vehicle for the attitudes in the Mason Garb report. The lives of Kathleen and Albert Black are part of fiction. What I've tried to do in the book is to spread the whole of the families and society that are affected by something like this. So when young men or young people, whatever, make these terrible mistakes, it's not just them that are changed. It's them, their victims, it's, it's their parents, the whole lot. It's, it, it, it can create so much sorrow. So for Kathleen Black, the mother back in Belfast, who makes a plea to the New Zealand government to save her son's life, um, 
there is um, there's the great sorrow that I bring to her as as a mother myself. Uh, I can imagine what's something I think of her of what she went through, and she raised a petition within a week with twelve thousand signatures to take to the um, to the New Zealand government, but. She was, it was not allowed to present it, nor indeed was she allowed to come to New Zealand to say goodbye to him. So, yep. Why do I think there's a miscarriage of justice? Just leaving aside my own personal abhorrence for the death penalty, if Albert Black was guilty of manslaughter rather than murder, he wouldn't have received the death penalty. Um, he says he was acting in self-defence because Alan Jacques, or Johnny McBride, had beaten him up badly the night before. And when he was pulled off him, he said he would finish him off the next day. Albert was known to be terrified of him, and I, there are living witnesses to that still. And he said in his evidence that Johnny had told him in the cafe that he was a yellow Irish bastard and he would finish the, outside, the fight outside. In other words, he had experienced the violence and was at that moment terrified that he'd be killed. It appeared that Al Albert panicked when he picked up the knife and gave him what was supposed to be a warning blow to the shoulder. He went straight to the police station, accompanied by another youth, to tell them what had happened. And here are th three things that cloud the outcome of his trial. When the police arrived, there were three teddy boys, young English seamen, present, as well as a number of young Kiwi men. The police rounded up the New Zealand youths and told the teddy boys they were not wanted. They had enough witnesses. Again, I have spoken to one of those once upon a time teddy boys. He still lives in New Zealand. Um, I've interviewed him with a witness present. His story is different again. Some of the Kiwi witnesses were never called. One was a man known as Pooch Quintal. His real name was Claude. He committed a petty crime the following day and was sent to Borstal in Invercargill. The police would not agree to him being sent north for the trial. Pooch lived for another 50 years, protesting that Albert was not given a fair trial and that his evidence would be that Albert had spoken the truth. Sorry. Rustle of papers. <laughs> However, when the matter came to trial, the group of young men who had been rounded up didn't support Albert's statement and said they heard nothing pass between the two men. We don't know whether they were telling the truth or not, but under cross-examination, they mostly agreed they were partially drunk or that they couldn't remember. Was there some collusion between them, and if so, why? Well, I can only guess at this, but there are two possibilities. After Albert left the cafe and went to the police, some of the young men rolled Johnny on his back, plunging the knife in deeply and cutting his spinal cord. It seems that a superficial wound had turned fatal. It appeared from the forensic evidence that this was what actually killed him. The young men were obviously trying to help, but they may have become panicked into thinking that they would be involved in Johnny McBride's death. So, 
Did they concoct a story between them? We know that some of them had committed petty crimes. Were they hoping to find favour by fitting the narrative to their own advantage? This does seem possible because the youth who accompanied Albert to the police station was subsequently intimidated. He had his car damaged outside the cafe a few nights later and apparently, in fear, left town the next day. He had to be found by the police and forcibly brought back to Auckland in order to give his evidence, which varied from that of other witnesses. But finally, this is what the judge had to say, and it was reported to the jury when they were still making their decision. The offender is not one of ours, except by adoption, and apparently comes from the type that we could well be spared in our country. He belongs to a peculiar sect, if you could call it that, or a peculiar association of individuals whose outlook on life differs from the normal. It is unfortunate that we got this undesirable from his homeland. It is a case of an apparently deliberate stabbing in a restaurant in Upper Queen Street, and there seems to be no opening of either provocation or self-defence or any of the defences usually presented in a case of this kind. The judge had said that even before the trial began. It was there in black and white in a newspaper for the jury to read. So, to me, it is a trial that was should never have gone ahead. Um, it seems to me to have been... Uh, that justice was not served in this situation. I don't, I'd like to leave some questions, time for questions, and time is whizzing by. Um, I thought I might just read a little bit of um, what I, I invented as the close, having told you about this, about the closing defence. I invented the lawyers too. They are based on real people, but again, it seemed necessary to, in, to, to create some fiction for them. Um, Albert Black, the accused tells us, doesn't have a taste for fighting and has not fought since schoolyard scraps in faraway Belfast. He had good reason to be afraid of Johnny McBride. So, fearing for his life, he slips a knife an ordinary kitchen knife that he uses for peeling potatoes into his jacket pocket. That's not a sensible decision, but one driven by his fear. Members of the jury, we expect somehow that young men will be as wise as we are when we are old. Sadly, that is not always the case. Buchanan feels himself relaxing. You have heard from various young men who were present in ye old barn cafe and the night Alan Jacques died. Black says that the deceased came into the cafe, punched him in the face and invited him outside. These witnesses have a common story that is at odds with his version. They say they did not see this action. They saw nothing. Their heads were turned away. They were talking to their girlfriends or they'd gone outside to the lavatory. They'd been drinking that day, all of them. Who is to know... Who saw what and who is telling the truth, the witnesses or the accused? And what are you to make of the evidence of Jeff Larson, the man who got up and went after Albert Black and walked with him to the police station? 
You might like to consider the possibility that Larson was intimidated by his see-nothing friends. Members of the jury, this is life and death. Buchanan rocks back slightly on his heels. Some of the men sitting before him return his gaze, or else stare at their fingernails, rub stubble on their chins, or glance sideways at the gallery, as if to wish themselves away from probing eyes. Some are beginning to look unwell, even feverish. You have before you this mortal boy, one who has made a mistake, unintended, but a mistake nonetheless, with terrible consequences. Death is forever, Buchanan says, as Albert Black now understands better than most of us. All around you, in this courtroom, you are surrounded by the beauty and vitality of youth, as well as its vanities and arrogance. The young occupy an uncertain universe. Mistakes can be made in the heat of the moment by the vulnerable young. Who amongst us has not had the thoughtless moment that cannot be recovered? Yet none of us have had to pay with our lives. In the clear, long light of all the days that lie ahead of these young people, most of their mistakes can be overcome and forgiven. As we grow older, we put behind us the belief that we are immortal. We gain a greater sense of wisdom and understanding of consequences. Our passions turn to questions of truth and justice, as well as the passions of the flesh. As people who pray for forgiveness for yourselves, you have now the opportunity to forgive another. Buchanan looks at the jury. Some of the men have quivering faces. He knows already the ones they can count on. There's one surprise among them. But there are not enough. There are simply not enough. And I'd just like to finish by saying that there was a hero that came out of that era, and he was a member of the National Party. He was Ralph Hannon, and Ralph Hannon was deeply opposed to the death penalty. And he argued for Albert's life. He didn't succeed, but he continued to, in his quest to have the death penalty ab abolished, and there was a wave of revulsion against the deaths that were occurring at Mount Eden Prison. And in 1963, he was, they were back at the National, National Party, were back in power. The Labour Party had been in briefly, had suspended the death penalty. Yet again, it was reintroduced when the National Party took power again in 1960. Hannon persuaded nine members of the National Party to cross the floor and vote with the Labour Party to abolish the death penalty. And one can only hope that it has been abolished for all time. Thank you very much. We've got time for a couple of questions, I think. How do you go about getting a mis miscarriage of justice declared? And have you thought about doing that? Yes, good question. Uh, you didn't, any of you didn't hear it, is how do you go about getting a miscarriage of justice cleared and have I thought about it? I've thought about it a great deal, actually, and I've been to Andrew Little and asked him if there's anything that we can do about it. So far, he's, I think he's a bit preoccupied with quite a lot of other cases. Um, he is, 
is supposed to be setting up a criminal cases review commission. And I'm kind of biding my time until that's established because I can see that it probably isn't possible at the moment to have anything done about it. What I rather fear, and I've had advice to this, which sound advice to this effect, is that the, um, that the statute of limitations has probably run out. This happened 64 years ago. And, I mean, he's not alive, as in the case of, say, Peter Ellis, who's, who was convicted 33 years ago. I don't know what my chances are, but what I would like to... What I hope will come out of this, and I think to some extent it already has, is that to look at this case in a slightly different light, it was luridly headlined as... A juke, the juke, he, he's always been known as the jukebox killer because the incident actually happened in front of the jukebox in the old barn cafe. He was trying to play um, Danny Boy because he had little, his little brother was called Daniel. And he was, it, it was, Bing Crosby was singing it. It was like a top tune was Danny Boy at the time and the Bing Crosby re rendition. And that's where this incident actually happened. I'd like to have a different perspective on his life and a different perspective on justice and how we jump to conclusions about right and wrong. One of the things that, um, that also emerged out of this is that I, I saw a piece in the Washington Post just last week about, you know, the death penalty is very much front, up front again in the US, and I saw that um, this, headline, this newspaper story that said that um, the, the unseen victims of the death penalty were correction staff, and in fact the correction staff in Mount Eden Prison, where they had four hangings in the side space of about six or seven months, was, um, was terrible. The, the superintendent who had to oversee this the, the death of these men uh, had been started off well in the 50s as a you know sound liberal sort of man. He became a desperate alcoholic. He just couldn't bear what he had been required to do. So there's so many so many victims and so, that in in these situations. Hi Fiona. Hi Tim. Thanks for doing that. That was really fascinating. Um, I have uh, a question about, I guess, looking at it from an older adult point of view. I'm, I'm thinking um, if Albert was threatened, why did he go back to a place where um, he, was, he was clearly going to get himself into trouble again? Why not step away for a while? Why did he go back to the cafe uh, where... Go back to Yeah, I mean, why not stay out of that for a while? Why not remove himself? Was it... Well, he didn't know that Johnny McBride was there. I mean, Johnny McBride came in. He needed to eat. That was where people ate. You know, they had the dinner. And he was also meeting his girlfriend. Um, and so, and he, she had got, as, as you'll see, if you read the book, you'll see that, that they had a re there had been a problem between them and they had arranged to meet there at the old barn cafe that, that evening. Yeah. So I wonder, did he think that maybe uh, he was untouchable, perhaps, in that sense? Did he think that he was untouchable? Oh, well, you know, young people do. That said, I, I, as an old person now, 
think that in this troubled world of ours, young people are the hope of the world. If we don't believe in the young, we're stuffed. <laughs> They're the people who are going to fix things now. 